episode was about doing on-the-ground research for creative projects. For us specifically, that meant taking a trip to Old Sturbridge Village, a recreated 1830s rural New England town. In the episode, we shared our observations and experiences as visitors, but we were interested in hearing deeper perspectives about how the museum operated, and we put out a call for anyone involved in recreation museum work. Just a day later, we got a message from someone who had worked at the village itself. Today, we're sharing our interview with historical interpreter Enzo, a former employee of Old Sturbridge Village. In our conversation with Enzo, we had the chance to learn more about how things worked behind the scenes at Sturbridge. We talked about moving up in the ranks at the village, what it was like making a connection with regular guests and our shared misfortunes within the Sturbridge Village cafeteria. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Enzo. So we are very lucky to be joined by Enzo today, who worked at Old Sturbridge Village. Thank you so much, Enzo, for being willing to talk to us about your experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you worked at Old Sturbridge Village like uh, 10 years ago, right? Yeah, uh Roughly for about like a year, year and a half in 2013. Yeah, I think it was actually just a whole year from 2013, 2014, January. Now that I'm looking on Facebook. <laughs> oh, do you look and like you get to see the memories that come up and the pictures? Uh, it was that was what my resume was for a long time for whenever I needed to apply to jobs. I just made sure to have my Facebook updated. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Can I ask how you got into historical interpreting? Yeah. Uh, so I went to college actually for history. Uh, I had like the lofty ideals of teaching. And so I didn't actually graduate. But like after I left college, I was kind of looking into things. And uh, since I grew up in the Worcester area, I was like super trying to work at Higgins Armory, which I don't know if you guys know, like used to be the biggest collection of medieval armor in the Western Hemisphere. That's the one that we're in, Whoa, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. I had no idea about that. Yeah. It was like some eccentric, rich, See? industrialist. <laughs> that, like, yeah. He like built a bunch of stuff. And like that was kind of cracking me up when you guys were talking about Old Star Ridge, like the same thing for the Higgins family. Like they just decided, <laughs> oh, we're going to build this giant art deco building, but on the inside, we're going to put like a medieval great hall and like <laughs> fill it with armor. And it was just like a hobby of his. So after I, I left school, I applied there to work and I got an interview and then they called me up and we're like, Hey, actually like we're closing the museum. So, Whoa. uh, good luck but the position is no longer existing and like a couple weeks later this is all on craigslist by the way like this is like 2013 <laughs> so everything all the jobs were on craigslist yeah i was still working like a dead-end retail job and my mom texted me and she goes hey like had to be seen old sturbridge is hiring and i'm like oh yeah i'm like that was like the colonial place blah 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 that was how I used to think about it because I went there as a kid a ton. I went on school trips all the time and I applied for the ad and got the job as like a seasonal employee to start. So there was like no guarantee of a real job past a certain point, but they never told me when that point was going to be. <laughs> uh, but like I said, like I was really into history. I mean, like I spent five years going to school for it. And so this job opportunity popped up and I was just like, let's go. Let's see what it's all about. So so when you got the work there, what was that work? What was your position? Uh, so I was hired as uh, the position was just called historical interpreter. And it was kind of like a catch all term for like every staff member of the museum. But uh, when I first got hired, specifically, it was like historical interpreter costumed interpreter was kind of like the category because like 
they had like people in costume and they had the people wearing the blue polos that like I'm sure you guys saw unless they changed colors in the last 10 years <laughs> at the front gate. Yeah, yeah. So right. like an out of costume, like I'm here to help you in the real world, find where you're going, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's like uh, that. And then like there was a couple other positions that I eventually got trained in that I wore the blue shirt and khaki pants kind of set up. They had like uh, kind of like the little kids area where they had like arts and crafts and like the broom making demo and that boat ride that I mentioned to you guys on the discord that they might not be doing anymore. I don't really know. I don't remember a boat ride, but I don't I'm think sad. they were offering it when we were there. Yeah. Either yeah. we just totally missed it or it's not being offered anymore. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it was like two really old pontoon boats and you kind of just like putted <laughs> up and down the river a little bit that was uh, kind of going towards the parking lot area. So it was like very bizarre, but it was definitely like one of their little like extra add on features. So, you know, I think this isn't a question that I wrote down, but do you have a memory of kind of like what the what the typical day looked like? Yeah. Uh, so like I was like really thinking back on this when I first started replying to you guys of like what the typical day was and it would be kind of like wake up in a panic uh, <laughs> drive from Worcester out to Sturbridge on the Mass Pike at I think like clock in time was like seven o'clock I want to say in the morning and so depending on what area I was working in I like the first like month or two I was there I was all part of like the quote-unquote agriculture or like ag so like you would show up you would go feed all the animals. All the animals that are there live on the farm full time. They're all like, this is their whole world. Like you guys were saying that like, <laughs> yeah. they don't know anything different. Like this is just what they do. At seven o'clock in the morning, everyone would be wearing full or like mostly full, depending on the season, 1830s clothes. We'd all jump into a pickup truck and like kind of break up the bales in the back of this truck and like drive out and drop it off. You do the like little sheep farm that's kind of close to the entrance. You would do the townhouse where we had at that time a couple of steers that were training to become oxen. And then there was the Freeman farm, which is kind of like the big red house that had like all the farm stuff going on all the time. Yeah. So like we do like we call the morning chores where like go in, we'd clean out like all the cow poop, we'd clean the like sheep pen a little bit during that time because it's like that's like an all-day process is like the worst thing that we ever had to do so we would do the chores and then that would take us probably like 30 minutes because there was at the time when i first started there's the three seasonal employees that i got hired with all men that were doing this because everything was like divided by gender so like the women that were working they would go in and start up all the cook fires wow they were really gendering the chores at Sturbridge. yeah and it was like kind of funny because like there'd be times where i'm like why like i have nothing to do like please let me go help somebody else when we got in all the college interns and all like the little kids that you would have like a ton of extra hands in the summertime of people who would be coming in to help but like towards spring fall going into winter it would kind of like cut down to like whoever was like the actual full-time staff yeah this is like i'm kind of going based on like an open day kind of thing because there was a time period that i was working there where we had like a lot of closed days which was kind of funny because like i have pictures of like at the time like my 2013 scion xb like sitting outside the freeman farm like <laughs> just being like oh like i'm time traveling today like just doing random stuff <laughs> yeah we do all the chores feed all the animals, get them all into the locations where they like are said to be on the map. And then we would all go down to the gift shop next to the bank because they had coffee and muffins and stuff like that. that they baked on site. And so it'd be like everybody hanging out, like people smoking their cigarettes and like drinking coffee and kind of just like shooting the shit for like 15 minutes. And then we'd all race to our different locations to kind of get set up for the first big wave of people. Cause like there was door busters all the time it's insane really yeah really yeah. oh my gosh were there lines ever uh yes i mean like first thing in the morning there's like a lot of people who have like the annual memberships that 
just come just to walk. And so at like 7 30 oh, yeah, in the morning, yeah. they're in the parking lot when like I pulled in to start working at oh, like wow. at eight o'clock or whenever the doors open, they would be like ready to go. Like they just wanted to say hi to everyone they knew. Like a lot of those people, and this is like coming back to me, like based on legitimately my last day there, it was like a blizzard. And we were thinking about closing the museum, but they're like, oh yeah, let's go. Like we can do this. And so like, I thought no one was going to show up. And then all these regulars who I had met from the past year who knew I was leaving after this date, they would show up and just be like, oh, we heard it was your last day from like so-and-so. So like <laughs> we wanted to come and say goodbye to you. And I was like, I honestly don't know your first name. I just know you oh. as like the last name of like the family. I'm like, I feel so bad that you guys got attached to me. But like, I don't know. It's kind of like I work as a mailman now. So I completely understand how they think now but like 10 years mm -hmm. ago i was like a 20 something year old i'm like why do these people have a weird little connection with me like this is very bizarre right yeah yeah that it it like sort of answers and i'd love for you to like expand on it a little bit one of the questions that we had written down because you know we we went once and we were like what would it look like to go to sturbridge village again like what would we do how would it change going back um what did the like annual pass holders look like i don't mean like what did they physically <laughs> look like like were yeah. they tall were they short like when like was it mostly families was that i really liked that you said that people walked because like i wouldn't have even thought about that just like going to sort of use it as an opportunity to like be outside in nature yeah i mean like that's definitely there was a lot of older couples and so the Big thing that you guys kind of touched on was that we aren't like a kind of place where you have a role when you come in. Like you're not a character, you're an interpreter. So you're trying to connect the 1830s New England experience to the modern day. And so we're able to be like, oh, you guys are wearing polyester suits or like polyester clothes from like a factory. Like we also in the 1830s wore factory clothes. So it's kind of like that immersion breaking thing. Mm -hmm. But once a year, they would do a whole kind of like interactive play where a couple assumed two characters to become married. And so throughout the day, you'd be sitting in different houses and people would be able to ask you questions about the relationship. And then they would watch you do a letter reading and then an actual marriage ceremony, which unbeknownst to me at the time, had we signed paperwork, the guy doing it was a legally ordained minister. <laughs> and so that was like the highlight of some of these people's year for like the regulars that came in all the time was it was like, it's the wedding. Like we have to find the youngest two people that work here and get them to become the bride <laughs> and groom to be. And like, wow. yeah, it was like bizarre. Cause like I'm 23. Like I did not think I was going to be the youngest person at the museum, but they're like, you, you were a groom. Yeah, I was the groom and I had to become a character and I had to read a line uh, about going on a nutting party with young boys multiple times per day. And it took me every ounce to not laugh about it. And like my family came in to watch this happen, including my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. And they, we're told like you cannot heckle like please do not heckle or say anything because some of these regulars this is the big event for them like oh yeah like i said i was literally the youngest guy working there at like uh i want to say 23 i don't i'm pretty sure that's how old i was i'm still kind of figuring out how old i'm turning this year but like, <laughs> yeah it gets like a little bit weird in the 30s i understand yeah so how sorry i'm I'm just very curious about the wedding day. Like, so it sounds like the sort of immersion, being a character, being in that time period, like that was dialed up during that day, but maybe not a hundred percent. Like if somebody asked you a historical question, would you switch to like the third person? Like people, yeah, like, people would prep this way for a wedding. Day. Yeah. And like, uh, if I was not the character, 
I like, and that was kind of like the big thing is that there were some people who were working there because they loved history. And there was a lot of people working there because they loved acting and they were like theater kids that got to wear a costume full time. And like I say, kids, like they weren't in their like late sixties and early seventies. <laughs> and like, yeah. there were some people who like very much had their own character that they would act as during the day. And then kind of like, they would jump out of character when they were talking to people. And then some people would just be like me where I was just, Hey, like, this is a job I'm working. I'm here to tell you historical facts and how do they relate to the modern age and kind of like walk you through things. So it was like a very jarring thing for me to become a first person interpreter. Mm. I think that was the term that they used. First person interpreter. Yeah. Like that's kind of like the, the Plymouth plantation kind of thing where you, they're like today you are playing not John Smith because that's like the obvious one, but like, joe schmo that came over and like you this is who you are this is like what you can talk about this is what you can have knowledge about this is coming a second hand from one of my friends who worked at plymouth plantation mm -hmm. uh and who was a theater person first and a historical interested person second and so it was kind of bizarre to me because when i first showed up i thought i was going to have to play a character all day and like the right. second they said that in the first training, I was like, you're not playing a character. I was like, oh boy. I'm like, that's like a humongous <laughs> relief. Like I <laughs> did like stagehand stuff and like that in college, but like I was not at all a theater kid. And I had like very deeply buried my old RPG roots back then. They didn't, they didn't tell you that you were going to be married. No, that, that one—that was the bait and switch. Yeah. I got guilted into that because they were like, "We legitimately do not have anyone younger than you here and willing to do this." And the worst part about it was they didn't even let me get fitted for a whole new costume. They just kind of said, "Like you look like you're the same size as this other guy who has a fancy suit made," because every all the costumes you see there, they're all handmade, and it's like that's, that's so amazing. That was one of the first things that happened was I went to the first like three days of training. And then like that fourth or fifth day, you went in and got your costume fitting. So there was like some things that were like universal sized, but like a lot of it is all custom made. And like, it was insane because it's just like this little unassuming outbuilding coming out of the museum. And it was their whole costume set up. And it was kind of like, it blew my mind when I first were, like walked in there just being like, there's so much stuff in here from like all the people who had worked here before me. So that was kind of like the first thing they're like, Oh, we want you to have a little bit of like a beat up look to it. But like, if you can't fit into anything. And so me being like very tall and very skinny at that time period, they had to like custom make my entire gear set basically. And like, uh, the big thing was, is that you had to have that costume set up the same, like, the way they wanted to every day you couldn't be missing something otherwise you'd have to go and you have to sign out for like if you didn't have your uh, cravat like the little men's neckerchief like you'd have to sign one out and return it at the end of the day oh so it was like really there was like a real system around the clothing yeah and like uh that was like the big thing is they would say different roles could have different costume pieces and so like when i first started as agriculture it was straw hat for the summertime like the big tall straw hats that you guys probably saw yeah yeah and then you had your shirt a cravat the little neckerchief that you had tied in a very certain way there was like a whole like hour and a half of us learning how to tie those and then you had your vest and your pants like they were kind of like sailor pants where they flapped down in the front with suspenders and then your shoes didn't have to be historical but like they kind of were like, these are the colors that you can do. But other than that, it was like once you started to get trained in more stations, you kind of unlocked like more items of clothing. <laughs> oh, it's like a game. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that's how my brain worked was like, oh, if I get trained to run the Mills program, I get a fancier set of clothes. And so like that's what I want to do is like get trained there. Or if I get to like one of the trade shops, I get to have not a straw hat and like <laughs> I can have something. And so like, of course, like I was like 
uh, total punk kid. So I was like, oh, I want to like flip up the front brim of my like straw cap to like kind of get it out of my way, like my line of sight. And like, I remember I got yelled at so many times by people just being like, why do you keep doing this to your hats? And I had to like come up with excuses like, oh, like I left it in my car like this or like one of the cows <laughs> like stepped on it and now the like, front brim is flipped up. But like, it was just kind of funny. And then like in the winter time, we had like a whole separate set of clothes. So it was kind of like once it started to get, or I got hired when it was cold out. So I got like the full ensemble and like, it was kind of funny. Cause like a lot of times I'd be out there just trying to wear just the historical clothes and people are like, are you crazy? Like wear a thermal underneath. Like we're not making these, like how they made them back then a hundred percent, but like you can't be yeah. freezing all day. <laughs> so that, made me think of our question of like how common was it to get fe like feedback or uh, like based on your performance or like level of immersion i mean cuz when you said that the hat thing it made it, it immediately made me think of one of our questions of like how common was it to sort of get line notes or at the end of the day at a staff meeting when they say like uh you know like enzo you were um <laughs> today you, were, you weren't quite showing up with the hat that we expected you to very yeah, better hatting Those cook tomorrow fires were looking pretty meager yeah. yeah yeah like how 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 common was that so it depends on how well you did the job. Uh, like, <laughs> uh, like I said, I was hired seasonal and like out of the three guys I got hired with, one of which was like, he was very good at the job, but like he had some other issues going on. So he didn't last too long. And then the third guy out of our group would just like start going off the rails on explaining things and like not follow like, cause like every system or like not every system, but like every position that you went into you would have like two days of classes that you had to take with whoever was running that program so if you were like you're going to agriculture like the guy who was running agriculture would give you a two-day class where you'd show up to work and like part of your shift you would go into a class and they would have like handouts and all these things that they're like study these these are the, what the facts that we have that people usually ask to oh. say yeah. And so like, that was like the thing that's like, I can't remember the whole spiel that I used to have running the sawmill, but I used to be able to quote exactly how much water used to run through it in the actual location where the sawmill was copied from versus the saw, like the mill pond that they had at Old Sturbridge, as well as like time frame of when they would use it. And like, if I didn't know the answer to those questions, they would say, always say, Hey, like, I don't know the answer that question but i can point you towards someone who is working that would know that question because they're actually in charge of all this stuff or like when i was running the mill system like we had a buddy system for the sawmill because it's a giant 1830s sawmill and it's actually oh at that point it was running i don't know if it's running still anymore it sounds terrifying but honestly like, <laughs> yeah like when it was going like if you didn't set it up correctly like things could go wrong and so Luckily, I'm like very easy. If someone tells me how to do something and I get to do it with my own hands, which is kind of like a reason why this job really appealed to me, I'm fairly good at it. Whereas some of the people I worked with, like they were getting close to destroying items in the museum because they didn't understand how they worked and would just continue to try to do them. Oh, and so like, yeah, that was kind of, I mean, it's like any workplace you go into, somebody's always going to be like, oh, that guy like sucks at the job. And like, you're kind of just like, eh, like what's going to happen to that guy? Like how long until he either quits or someone convinces him that he needs to quit instead of getting fired? Because like, that's like always any job doesn't want to pay employment really for that. Right. So it was kind of like, there'd be that. And like, sometimes walking around. If like we used to do this thing we call like random tool displacement, like if you didn't have anything in your hand, it looked way more suspect than if you were walking with like a shovel or like a pick or something. They would always tell us if you're going to go from one place to another, just have something in your hand and like it will look like you're going to go do something busy work instead of being like... <laughs> If I, I'm going to lunch, like I'm going to take one of like the broken tools with me and walk with it that doesn't look broken to somebody, but like we all knew like, oh, that pick is like completely destroyed. 
So like if I was going somewhere with it, like the guests would come in and they wouldn't say like, oh, this dude's just walking like with his hands in his pocket doing nothing. Oh, yeah. So you just like you look sort of purposeful and busy by having a tool in your hand. Yeah. And like even like when the shareholders or like upper or like I guess it was all kind of middle management at that point would come around like you always want to look like you're doing something or like going somewhere because like no one really wants to see someone walking with their hands in their pocket anywhere in that museum. It's kind of like, I don't know, it, it kind of pulls you out a little bit if some dude's just like whistling going down the street without anything in his hand. But yeah, I guess it makes sense when also, you know, there aren't there aren't characters aside from wedding day. Yeah. So there, everybody sort of defaults to just like, I am a laborer. I'm a, I, I do my job. Yeah. And like, that was also like a big thing was a lot of people kind of like when you go in there, you go, Oh, like, uh, like you guys are talking about like the uh, guy who makes barrels, the Cooper. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that was, I had blanked on the name the whole episode. Like, yeah. The Cooper. Thank you. Screaming being like, it's the Cooper. <laughs> it's the Cooper shop. Cause that was something that like I have burned into my mind. Cause people always like, <laughs> cause I, yeah, I think Evan was like the barrel maker and I was like, no, it was a different name. Thank you. Yeah, And like, it's so funny to me. Cause I was like, everyone would go up and be like, Oh, it's like, this is where they work with copper. And I was like, no, no, no. This is where they work with wood. <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, yeah, like that was kind of the big thing was like the going to the different trade areas. Those were all part-time gigs back then. But like when you showed up to work some days, it would be like a full-time thing. Like the uh, clay shop. There would be days where when I got trained to work clay, I'd be downstairs in the basement of that building uh, using modern clay spinning things to try to make cups that they would sell in the gift shop. Ooh. <laughs> Which like I, knew, I, I know you guys were thinking yeah. about. It. It's like it was kind of funny because like I kind of got we got in, in a big wave of guys to get trained on that. And those cups are so hard to make that some of those guys who make the cups that they actually sell have been doing it for like 20, 30 years at that point when I had first started. And like those cups look amazing. My cups did not look that great after like <laughs> three months of doing that once a week. Oh my gosh. So Evan, do you want to like ask the frame the question around sort of the, cause that was a question that we had was about how, how things sort of flowed through the gift shop and who got paid for them. Yeah. I'm, I'm super curious how, <laughs> well, exactly how you put it just like how did these things flow to gift shops did did people get like a, a like a royalty like a little something a commission if is that would that be the word commission a commission or was it like was it well just how was it yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did how, that work how, how did it work so like this is like the tail end of my time of being there was when i started getting trained in the actual trades the way they explained it to me was that they might have had a commission. People are being very coy about this because I think they're kind of protecting their like little area that they were working in. But like, oh, interesting. They have like a very good standard on what they allowed in the gift shop versus what they allowed to be like kind of like props in the museum. So like, if you go into the clay shop, there's like a ton of cups in there and tons of stuff. So like maybe my cups weren't like great enough to be gift shop quality that I was making towards like a couple of months into doing that. But like, they were definitely good enough to have in like the unbaked clay pile. Yeah. And like, <laughs> that was the kind of thing. And so like, there was never really, they never said that we're going to make money off it, but there was the other shops, like the tin shop and the blacksmith. Those guys were like doing like quote unquote real work and like real cool stuff. Cause they've been doing it for years. And I think some of those guys got paid extra for how much they put out. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like I said, some people are kind of like a little bit hiding it from me when I was trying to ask to get into those shops. Cause like I really wanted to become a shoemaker. Like I was dying to learn how to do that for some reason when I was working there <laughs> and like they would not let young people train on it. I remember there's a dude in his thirties that was there and like he was the youngest, he looked younger than me because I had a huge beard at that point, but like he was 10 years older than me and he had just gotten into being a shoemaker after I'd been there. Like he had been there for maybe five years or something like that. 
just because huh. there was like a week when I got hired there, they had like a wage freeze. So like no one was getting any sort of pay increase and they were kind of on a hiring freeze. So like that was a kind of like they would hire us as seasonal people. And then it was towards the end of fall. They were kind of like, Ooh, like, will you have a job in the winter time? Like, will we have hours? And like, everyone was always talking about this kind of like the winter gap because the long winter exactly (laughs) like the the museum shuts down a couple days a week because like no one really wants to be out in freezing weather this day and age which yeah i don't know i never saw a non like there'd be days where like you might not see people more than like once or twice a day in certain areas just because like oh it's pouring freezing rain like people don't really want to walk around outside except for the extreme regulars so like there would be a couple days where like I just would be in the mill program and just not run any of the mills because no one would show up. And I didn't want to like add wear and tear onto these buildings just because like I wanted to run them for my own enjoyment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. That's not something I would have even thought of, but it makes sense. I mean, even when we went, it was, I can't remember if it was May or June, but it was a day that was like exceptionally cold for that time of year. And it was like this freezing rain. And I think that we probably got like denied ourselves a little bit of the the maximum Sturbridge experience just for that reason. It's like tough when it's the elements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, your service experience seemed pretty normal from what like I remember people talking about, but also like the food poisoning part is like, (laughs) I've only gotten food poisoning like three times in my entire life. And twice was at the cafeteria at old Sturbridge. No, no. no. (laughs) Oh gosh. Like I have a very clear memory of getting food poisoning right when my wife and I first became officially dating and like, someone had texted me and I was like, Oh no, like I actually have like really violent food poisoning from work again, which I will point out. I used to eat three meals a day of the historical food in the Freeman townhouse. Never got sick from that stuff. The times when I took, I paid for lunch and I ate in the cafeteria, I got sick. Oh no, I feel so bad. I feel like we're gonna, I feel like if anybody from like current, current old Sturbridge listens to this, they're going to be like, we have, we have a situation on our hands. (laughs) Yeah, it was. (laughs) I'll say that was probably the only time I called out was when I was like, but like, I I also went to my friend's wedding. He had it at old Sturbridge, like right before (laughs) the lockdowns of the pandemic happened. And I ate the food there and I'm like, this is exactly the same as it was 10 years ago. And I'm like, the entire night I was like kind of sweating being like, yo, I'm like, no. I was like, I know this is cooked in a different kitchen than the cafeteria food, like the tavern food. But I was like, I'm just freaking out right now. I kept telling my wife, I'm like, I can't enjoy tonight. Like I got to like prep myself for like the next two days. Oh my gosh. Um, man, what's going on? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, that's, this is, this is a, like a hard pivot, um, to something more delightful. Cause you said something that made me think of this question. Um, do you have a sense of like how much of Sturbridge's like income is really boosted by things like weddings or private events? Like, is that like a really big, is that really financially significant? I would say yes, because like, that was kind of the only time that we got paid overtime. Like as a current union employee and like a big labor advocate, like nowadays going back and thinking about like how the overtime was given out, you would have to like scramble when they announced a wedding to sign up to become like one of the walkers to go there. And it's not cheap, but also I used to, I legitimately just remembered I did overnight stays for like camp groups there and oh, wow. I would get paid from when I clocked in at like four o'clock on the day. I would like not work during the daytime when the museum was actually open, but I would clock in at like five o'clock and set up for the overnight people for when they were finishing up in the actual museum. And then I would get paid through that like next morning where they would do like the whole, uh, there's like a whole learning center up on a hill that you only go to if you're in a school group or a camp group. But like I would have to make them breakfast, which before I moved down south, it was like, ooh, like what's this weird old timey meal grits that they have? 
And like, <laughs> I was joking around about it, but my wife is from the South and she was like, what do you mean? This is an old timey meal. She's like, I legitimately <laughs> yeah. have this all the time. <laughs> we never stopped eating grits. <laughs> yeah. But like, I remember that was kind of like my, one of my big things was like, Ooh, I'm finally getting paid overtime because like I've been not let to work any of these weddings, but like, I'm going to do the overnight, which was absolutely terrifying to be locked in a building with a bunch of little kids screaming in the middle of the night. And I'm sleeping <laughs> in a like office room in a sleeping bag. And there's like kids banging on my door at like two o'clock in the morning for no reason. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say it must've been great to have the overtime as a 23 year old, but also that sounds kind of terrible. Yeah. I, it wasn't my favorite thing to do. And that was out of costume stuff. Like some of my coworkers, they did like costume nighttime tours where everyone held little lanterns with like tea lights in them and they walked around in the dark of the museum. And that was kind of cool. But like, that was not what I was doing. I was like frantically trying to clean and like set up like dinner for all these people that was, I can't remember what the dinner was, but I do remember like they were very adamant of like, the amount of breakfast cereal boxes I could put out for certain groups, depending on the size, because they didn't want people taking too many. <laughs> oh my gosh. But like, uh, see, that's such a good, those are like the types of details that I'm so, I appreciate so much you being able to give us. Yeah. I'm like, like I said, I mean, it's been so long since I worked there. I'm sure things have changed hopefully for certain aspects, but like, it's kind of bizarre, like being on the other side of that fence of like, even just like watching people take smoke breaks, it was like legitimately the funniest thing to me. Like there was one place that we figured or they had figured out that no one can see you from any position in the museum. <laughs> and so all the employees were like, oh, if you like smoke, like this is where you have to stand. Like you cannot stand anywhere else because that was another thing in the employee handbook, even though like tobacco pipes are super prevalent and historically accurate and they sold them in the gift shop they're like no employees can smoke in front of guests because it's kind of like Ugh. yeah sure it was like that and like watching people smoke a cigarette and like pinch the butt out and put it in their pocket i was like oh i'm like <laughs> just, just find a trash can and palm it the whole way there yeah is there anything else from sort of the employee handbook that's like that, that maybe seems kind of w weird or you're like, why, like, how does this make sense? But in the context of like accuracy or historical interpretation, it makes sense that, that you can think of or just anything that was weird where you were like, why do we have to do this? I mean, like a big part of me nowadays is like the really gendered, stuff that we did even though they had historical evidence that it wasn't always that way like i think maybe once or twice we were able to let the college interns like the girls that were there because there was i don't think any male college interns the summer that i worked there they were actually able to like plow the field and like it was kind of funny of just all the time how weirdly gendered some things were that just didn't make sense to me, but because they didn't really have historical evidence, that would always be their thing they'd fall back on. Huh. That's really, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, Evan, is there anything that has been percolating for you? Well, yeah. One, when you were <laughs> talking about the, the, the camp overnights with kids, it made me just wonder about like how, how what was there any tension between the village being oriented towards children versus adults like i really like never felt that even the crustiest old timers who seemed like they were miserable people <laughs> would always be so welcoming and like so Aww. attached to like having young people get interested because like my generation, and I'm sure your generation were the same age, is like we grew up in the 90s where it was like education was insane and rad and like all this stuff. And it was like the heyday of the museum was like the late 80s, early 90s to mid 90s. Yeah. And like they, a lot of those people talked about how much they missed it being packed with kids all the time. And so it, it kind of like when you guys were talking about Worcester School, like not going there. 
because of the whole charter school thing, it reminded me like when you ran the sawmill, they timed it so that you would be in the sawmill as those kids came running down the hill from the school drop off exit. And so, yeah, that first thing those kids saw was this giant 1830s machine just going loud. And like, that was my favorite day of working there was being in the sawmill and like just hearing the kids running down and being like, what is that noise? Like, we got to go figure out what it was. (laughs) And I'm like, and being, that's so yeah. sweet that's just so like sweet being that welcoming to them of just like the most exciting thing and then i'm like oh my like, yeah let's see somebody in the freeman townhouse top this or like a freeman farm like you can't top a sawmill going at full speed for these kids other yeah. than like you know they get to actually touch the oxen which i'm sure immediately top the sawmill but <laughs> Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. And it also, it like, it it smooths over some of my cynicism that I also feel like maybe I brought into our first episode too much of like thinking about myself as a kid going to historical sites and being like, this is boring. School's boring. <laughs> Hearing you say that like there was like really legitimate joy and enthusiasm and connection from like a lot of the kids is just like so awesome yeah and it's like i mean like i definitely there were some kids that were just like why do you look funny and like stuff like that that i was just like (laughs) okay i'm like whatever you're a kid like i understand that but like people were so excited to have kids there and like i would say probably like 75 percent of the things that people were doing they wanted kids to get hand on to that because Mm -hmm. I mean, like, the whole point of living history is to bring this stuff alive to kids. And so, like, as someone who hasn't done this kind of work in, like, 10 years, it still, like, fires me up to be like, I want to go somewhere and I want to touch history as much as I can and, like, make it real to me. Because, like, we have such a huge disconnect. You look at old-timey photos of, like, the 1960s and it's all in black and white and it doesn't make it feel real. And so. Yeah. That mm-hmm. simple fact of like when I was in the mill program, yeah, I ran like the sawmill it was the best thing ever. But then I went to the wool mill and we had like a little station set up where you had to hand smooth out wool. And so like we would have kids doing that. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, that stinks. Like you guys have been working for 20 minutes and you've gotten like one little tiny thing of like smooth mm-hmm. wool. I'm like, I've been working for probably five minutes and I got like a whole basket full of it. I'm like, this is the whole point of the industrial revolution is to try to make things easier for the working person. But we all know how yeah. that turned out. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're looking back with that perspective, I'm just curious how successful you consider old Sturbridge village to be in making history alive and like bringing that kind of history to kids, to new people. I'm heavily biased. I'm pretty sure about this, but like, I think the fact that we weren't in character and we could relate things to the actual modern world and not kind of be like, oh, ye there with the (laughs) bright (laughs) thing. Like, I feel like it made people want to learn more or like want to ask questions because we could give them like real answers and like have them actually touch stuff. And like that whole tactile kind of learning, I feel like resonates with so many more people compared to being like, oh, we're going to go stare at some dude sitting in a house and he's going to like talk to us in a funny way. And so we'll have that memory. But like, did we actually pick anything up from that? Or is it just like the funny talking dude who was shelling corn for like the entire time we were there? Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's such a good answer. It's really cool to think about the fact that like breaking the immersion, so to speak, can actually be like a better way of connecting with history. I think that's awesome. Yeah, and like when I was leaving there, I'm sure it was open at this point, but like we had a whole house that was sitting there and it was just full of plaques and it was so boring for people to go into there and everyone would always talk about them like why don't you have people at the Bixby house and the big push that we had when I was working there was they wanted to have that fully staffed and I know at some point they did I don't know if they still have it there but like imagine you're going from 
one house where there's people working, they're doing stuff. You can ask them questions and you go into the next house, like 20 feet away and it's just plaques and you're just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. We actually experienced that. Yeah. 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 We, we went to one where it was just, uh, it's just sort of a clothing museum Yeah. yeah. with plaques and yeah, it was a, a visceral change in energy. Yeah. That's like the one thing that kind of like seeing the ideas that some of the like interpreter staffs have and just knowing that they couldn't hire enough people to do this and pay more than I was making like barely above minimum wage, which someone living at home and being covered under my parents' health insurance didn't matter. But I had like older coworkers who were probably my age now who were like, Hey, I got like a kid and like, I really want them to go to the dentist at some point. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I'm not sure how much that has changed. I mean, like I've still follow OSV on social media and it seems like they're actually recognizing like college interns and people who are working there. And I'm hoping it's gotten a lot better. I'm assuming it has, but I don't know. I don't really have high expectations for how much a museum can actually pay people based on my time there. Yeah. I mean, it just, it seems like such, just such an issue with museums and something that a lot of people are talking about across the country who work for museums or worked for museums. And obviously also like the big gaps between the people who are the, you know, in the upper management and the people who are working on the ground. I I mean, I will say one of the biggest anger moments for me was I had just moved back from living down south with my wife and I got a job working at a bar and someone was complaining about how much the people under her were getting tweaked out at their job. And it turned out she was on the board of directors for Old Old Sturbridge and she recognized me while I was bar backing. And I was like, hey, I'm like, well, here's where I am instead of being there where I used to be a highly remarked employee and... Now I'm pouring you water and filling up your mezcal drink. Yeah. Wow. That's you that's know, I was gonna ask rough. if you had had any interactions with like, you know, the higher ups. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a bit more of an interaction than I yeah, ever imagined. I, we had like one big employee dinner at like a quote unquote fancy place in Sturbridge that was down the road, but like I was really towards like the ne'er do wells and kids table area of the <laughs> the ne'er-do-wells and kids table. That's yeah, funny. Like, a, there were so many characters that worked there, but like I didn't even get a chance to talk to any of them. And even like the wedding day where I was the star of the day, more or less, like never heard anything about that. So it was kind of like, it was so far removed where some of the board of directors actually worked in the museum. And those are like the kind of historical interpreters, but those guys had been there forever. And so... Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were the people who'd walk around and be like, oh, can you just like retire stuff? Or like, can you button it this certain way? Because this is what we have picture evidence for if you don't want to wear it all the way buttoned up. And like, that was the most that I really interacted with them. But the people who were actually making the big decisions, I only saw them driving away from the offices in their fancy cars, whereas one of my cars that I owned during that time period, the wheel fell off on the highway. So. Oh, oh, oh Hey, I'm glad that you are okay yeah. to tell the tale. Of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, were, were there any, were there ever any moments where it was like, Oh, like the, the suits are coming today. Make sure you really are like, you know, really interpreting perfectly or was that not an experience that I you think there was like a couple days where they were like oh like there's vips in the museum of like people who donated a lot of money and that was oh. like one of the things i remember was someone saying like oh like i'll point them out to you because i know who they are but like make sure you're on your best behavior and not like sneaking away to go try to take a nap inside of one of the buildings that's not staffed or something like that. Yeah. But, uh, I like legitimately, I don't think the suits had time because when I was working there, they were just starting to renovate the hotel that was next door, which I got pressed into working on those hotel rooms one day. Like I was in full costume and I was just 
like pulling furniture out of one of those rooms and like demoing. And I was like, this is not exactly what I signed up for. And then the charter school was in the first stages of stuff. And so they were trying to, the most I ever got was someone asked me if I was actually uh, trained to be like a Massachusetts teacher. And, and so they were trying to get people from inside the organization to be their first wave of teachers. If it was going to actually go through. Oh, Interesting. Okay. And also you said hotel. I didn't even know that there was a connected, like a hotel that was somehow financially connected. There was a hotel that was next to it. And the year I started working or the year I worked there, they had bought the hotel out from the previous owners with the intention of renovating it and making it so people who wanted to come from out of state could stay a hundred percent on campus and not have to like, so it's like, it's when like you come in, because this is also what they offered when I stayed at the wedding for my buddy, I rented one of those rooms and it was one of the rooms that I helped build. And so I was like cracking up uh-huh. because I was like, I built this room and I was like, there are certain things in this room that I know I did. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Evan, did you know about that? No, not yeah, at all. Yeah, that one, we just, we totally I will say the one. bed was extremely comfortable and they have like a little fire pit outside and it's like a very nice like New England style hotel. And like, yeah, it was very convenient from, I mean, I've made the walk before from there to roughly where the restaurant that used to be next door was. I think it just burnt down. So it's like, it makes sense for them to have bought this place. But it's yeah. one of those things where I was like, why am I doing this work when you guys could just hire contractors yeah. and probably get it done twice as fast? Yeah, that's like a real blurring of your responsibilities and expectations. <laughs> um, so I want to like, I want to think of like really good final questions for you because I want to be respectful of your time. Evan, can you think like, is there anything like a burning question that you want to make sure that we ask of Enzo? Uh, you know, I'm I'm interested. If there's anything about historical interpreting or the job itself or this kind of museum that you feel like most people don't realize or you'd like more people to know, like, what would you want to say about them? Very uh, philosophical question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, the main thing I want to say is most people that are working there are doing it out of a passion, whether it's for history or being in character or even just like being able to dress up and play at being like a farmer at all times. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like a weird thing. I mean, I will now looking back on it, wish I had done my college internship there instead of somewhere else. But like, it's like a passion job for sure. No one goes into that trying to get rich. I mean, if you are, you're going to be on the board of directors, but you probably didn't come in working on the ground floor more or less. But <laughs> yeah, right. I think the main thing is, is that almost every person that I knew that worked there loved seeing anyone's eyes light up when they saw something or asked a question and like got a rise out of you, not in like a negative way, but of like getting you on a tangent about talking about something. I think that was so rewarding for like everyone I worked with, but that's really sweet. It's really charming. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I felt like I felt like that was apparent too at our our visit, even though I feel like we didn't really get like as much time to talk to people as we wanted to. Just like like we went on the opening day of the piggery and the person that we talked to was so excited to share this like very specific part of history when we asked a like when we asked a question that dug a little bit deeper and we were like, oh, yay. Oh, he was so excited to share that. And we learned something and like he did all this awesome historical research. Um, yeah, that was that really was absolutely cool. the first impression. It's just yeah. like, oh, this is a job where people are, are they're into it. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have to agree. Like after working so many years of retail service industry and now uh, working as like a mailman, it's just, you when you see people who actually care about their job and not for like the 
monetary value, but the actual mm-hmm. social value and like kind of, I don't know, the feel good value. It's way different than working anywhere else. Cause I mean, I worked at Walmart for a while and no one wants to work at Walmart. No one has that joy there. So it was very different, which is also a funny joke because I think 99% of the people that I worked with also worked at Walmart. So when we hired someone new, we'd always ask them what section of Walmart they were in. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. The the retail to Sturbridge pipeline. Yeah, I would say garden center won out way more than electronics where I was at. But yeah, huh. I mean, you got to figure those guys are outdoors most of the time. So I'm sure this wasn't a great trend or a big transition, I should say. They graduate to the village. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. I have a, I want to ask you a very silly closing question because I was thinking about this when I was thinking about my sister who worked for um, the Eastern State Penitentiary for a lot of years, which is not an active prison. It is like a historic prison in Philadelphia. Um, And that place is really interesting because I think probably similar to Sturbridge, it's like, where do you get your funding from? So some of it is as like a museum where they give tours through the prison during the day. And then during Halloween season, it's just like, all out like ghost shit (laughs) and there's this like real tension between like the ghost people and the history people um but that's an aside my question is you know working at Sturbridge Village like I know my sister was like okay it only takes a few days before you hear like the same jokes again and again do you remember now like some of the sort of like one-liners that you just got to hear again and again I think the one thing that like drove me absolutely insane was like people saying, (laughs) Oh, people are shorter back then. And like, Oh, uh, six, three on a good day, six, four. And all those buildings have very short doorways. So I would be constantly smacking my head on things. I mean, like I burned through the straw hats because of how many times I destroyed them. And anytime (laughs) a guest saw me hit my head, they would immediately go, oh, people were shorter back then. And you were like, I, I don't like, want to hear historically, that Historically, <laughs> they weren't. And like that would be like, instead of like yelling or like being in pain, like I just immediately launched into this whole spiel about how like there were tall people back in all old days. It wasn't just short. Like, yeah, it just costs a lot of money to make your house taller. And so there yeah. was that. And then I'm trying, there was like something else. Like there was jokes that we had based on old timey jokes that like were historically accurate that we would say to each other. Like if someone was walking and they tripped, we'd ask like, Oh, you got a brick in your hat, which was an old euphemism for being drunk. Ooh, good one. (laughs) And so like, I mean, it makes so much sense. And now like every once in a while I'll be watching someone walk drunk. And like, that's the first thing that pops in my head. And I'm like, this is like, 10, 12 years later, and I cannot not think that. Yeah. And like I've said this before when I've been out of like, oh, do you got a brick in your hat? People are like, what does that mean? <laughs> so you have now become the person who repeats the historical exactly. one liner. And like it was that. And uh another thing was this is I can't remember. I was listening to like another podcast, uh, the Maniculum podcast, where they were talking about like queer people in history. And I, at, when I was working at Old Sturbridge, they told me the term for a lesbian couple was a Boston couple or a Boston marriage. Oh, that was a, that was really? the thing that I, like lesbian had not come into the common, like common parlance yet, but they had so many different yeah. articles where it would be like a pair of women would be described as a Boston couple. Oh my gosh. I love how like cosmopolitan yeah, like, it, it is. That, phrase has stuck in my head this entire time and i'm like i'm sure someone will probably that's not actually what it was it was something different and i was like that's what i remember it being but it's like the whole like queer erasure and history like that kind of whole like that and then uh the universal friend the quaker person who is non-binary i learned about for the first time or would be called non-binary in today's things i learned about them the first time 
at Old Sturbridge because we have the Quaker Meeting House and we had a couple of interpreters who were Quakers. And like when they found out I was interested in these kind of topics, like, oh, like, have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? And now it's like coming back. I was like, oh, man, I'm like, I do remember learning about that from one of my friends that worked there. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, my gosh. Get the, that it it does seem like um, Sturbridge, I mean, at least from looking at the website and stuff, it, it seems like they are being sort of aware in their programming and, and really trying to bring a focus to uh, highlighting some of the parts of history that like really, I'm sure for many, many years have been sidelined at some yeah. of these places. So I will um, say, yeah, you can probably cut this out if it doesn't make sense, but they made like old Sturbridge made a good pride post and some Bobo revolutionary war museum <laughs> out in California, Bobo. not even like <laughs> anything to do with the revolution or anything like that kept commenting all these negative things, like posting multiple times with like sad, like what does this have to do with history? And I'm like, you're uh, a revolutionary war museum in California. What do you have to do with anything that has to do with where you are at in history? What are you doing <laughs> for like Californian history? Which also is like a lot of stuff that would probably upset you if you're commenting sad on a pride post during pride month. And it's just like seeing that kind of stuff and seeing that old story was just like, this is who we are, like accept it. And yeah. like knowing the people that worked there the time I was working there, I was just like, I'm glad that old Sturbridge is being very vocal about where they kind of fall on that side compared to places like this museum out in California. That is just <laughs> miserable. And I definitely had left a one-star review on them just saying, Oh, what a miserable place to be at. <laughs> good for you way to do your work <laughs> uh uh also yeah when you said like sad commenting i just keep imagining that like surly museum just being like frowny face literally it was frowny just sad, sad 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 <laughs> and i'm like oh no yeah oh god like, i hate your social it. media dude who can't come up with any better insult than just sad and like i was like sad. this has everything to do with history but I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I am genuinely like, I'm really happy to hear that. And I'm glad to hear that Old Sturbridge Village is standing on the right side of history that's already happened and is yeah. still being made. <laughs> <to that. laughs> the history of the present. Yeah. Um, and so thank you so much for joining us to talk about your time at Old Sturbridge Village. It, I appreciate it so yeah, much. I mean, I really had fun. I could probably talk for another two hours about stuff. I mean, I didn't even get into my Ken Burns story, but. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're going to have to tell us like off mic. I'm, yeah, it, it, I it really want to hear it. story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're just, we're so appreciative Absolutely. of your time. Absolutely, anytime. We want to extend our sincere thanks to Enzo for spending that time with us and giving us a deep dive into recreation museum work. Yeah, it was so awesome. Thank you so much, Enzo. You know, there's like these, well, first there's these ideas that you can have in your head about the way that places work and then there's ways that you can like kind of extrapolate extrapolate those ideas to like oh and this is how this is how I'll write it into my project or my game or my story but then you get like a story as specific as like oh what did regular visitors look like like a regular season pass holder like people who went and walked every morning Right. To look at the goats. And I It's like a never, simple idea that I never would have thought I of. I never would have thought of it. So yeah, it just it it's so cool to I feel so fortunate that we could have this conversation. And I loved the description of the one spot that was not visible from any sight line of the yes. guests. This like secret staff huddle spot where everybody <laughs> would congregate. It was so good. And also Enzo did tell us a, a really, really good story off mic, which we will not retell, but it was it was a, a really amazing and funny story about those sight lines. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah thanks again Enzo I feel like we got like a little special treat at the end there 
The Design Doc intro-outro theme was written by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. Design Doc is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. OneShot hosts other great shows, like Character Creation Cast. Character Creation Cast is a discussion podcast where Amelia Antrim and Ryan Bolter create characters in multiple RPGs with prominent guests from the game community. Each month, Character Creation Cast examines the character generation process in depth for a different game with new guests each series. They always take the time to reflect on the game, its design, and what guests have to say about it. Think of it as sitting in on a great Session Zero every week. So with that, thank you. If you are the type of person who goes onto Apple Podcasts and ever leaves a review, reviews make a huge difference. They really do find, like, they make the podcast look real. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they they matter. They help people find it. So, yeah, but just thanks thanks for listening. It's so cool. It's so cool. Here's to 100. Here's to 100. <laughs> I'm going to say it like my Zadie would have. <laughs> All right. See you soon, heroes.